familiar passage, uh, Romans 10, will be verses 12 to 17. I want you to imagine with me for just a moment uh, that uh, you're a middle-aged adult. Some of you say, I don't imagine that. Um, Well, just we'll we'll keep going. Living in the uh, rural areas of Pakistan. Say, when you were young, you worked as much as your age would allow to help the family. You studied as you were able. You tried to be a devout Muslim, going to the mosque, praying to Allah, and being a somewhat moral person at least on the surface. Now it's your responsibility to take care of the family, so you run your shop in the village as you seek to live a good life. You're not sure whether you'll make it to paradise, but you try hard. You do this the rest of your life, and then one day you die. You were born, you lived, and you died, and you never heard that God sent his son to this earth as a substitute for your sins so that you could be restored in relationship with God and enjoy him forever. You never heard that Jesus Christ died again and rose again for you. This represents roughly about 41.6, I guess you could say whether that's, you know, debatable, uh, percentage of the world's population, a little over 3 billion people are claimed to have never uh, heard the name of Christ or at least never had an opportunity to respond, um, someone share the message with them. You know, it's not just in the rural parts of Pakistan that, that this takes place, that people have never heard the message of Christ. It's in the urban centers of London, of New York, uh, of, of Boston, of Providence, of, uh, of, of Istanbul. It's in, it's in the bush of Africa. It's in the dense populated cities of Asia. We're not talking about people, again, who have just simply rejected the gospel, but those who've literally never heard of Jesus. They've never heard the name of Christ. And my question this morning for all of us, myself included, is, so what can we do about this problem? Because that is a problem. What can we do about it? Well, before we read these verses, uh, just a little bit of the context, this declaration of the gospel message that Paul's seeking to answer, he has a question that he raises in chapters 9 to 11 of the book of Romans. Uh, He has this phrase that that he highlights in chapter 9, has the word of God failed? And Paul, in sharing his heart and concern for these people, Israel addresses a logical question. He says, if Israel, the ones to whom the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises belong, have not accepted their Lord, does this mean that this this word of God is untrustworthy, that it's wrong, it's it's failed in some way, it's broken? Paul demonstrates in chapter 9 that this is not the case. He states the importance of understanding, again, who a true Jew is. This this Jew who believes on the Messiah, the key being the Messiah, not just ethnicity. He then goes on to describe and explain this biblical view of election in chapter 9. And at the end of chapter 9 and beginning of chapter 10, Paul is showing us the scope of this message, this, this great global effect of this Messiah to be proclaimed. And in this explanation of this message to be proclaimed to all people, we find our text, verses 12 to 17 of chapter 10. So let's read, or I'll read uh, these, these few verses here. It says, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then Paul goes into these questions. He says, how then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? 
And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed that he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Three simple things this morning, and and we won't take long for this, but the first thing is God desires to save all the nations. Secondly, God desires to use us to bring that mission about. And then the last thing is that God actually put together, he designed a simple method to accomplish this mission. So number one, God desires, God loves, God God. God wants all the nations to know him. He desires to save all the nations. God's desire is that none would perish. We see this in 2 Peter 3, 9. But, but that all would repent of their sin and turn to him. This is reality. He does desire that everyone on the planet would do this. But there's a slightly different emphasis that Paul wants us to get, that Paul's speaking of in Romans 10. Yes, yes, he wants all people to, to know him, but I think he has more of an intentional, he, he, his desire is that all these nations would know God in, in this context, in Romans 10. Paul says in verse 12, we read, for there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. And then he goes on and says, for the same Lord is Lord of all. This context of Jew and Greek, is he's the Lord of all and bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Why is this important? You say, what's, what's the point of that? Seems like, you know, uh, I, I don't get it. Well, these verses are placed in this context of, of Paul explaining, again, this election of these people. He's saying this message of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, while being rooted in promises given to this nation, is meant to be proclaimed to every nation, to every people, to every tribe, to every tongue. Again, as we just sang about this morning. Because God is the Lord of all. And he bestows, he's bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Not just Jew. And not just Greek. All. And then Paul says it plainly in verse 13. He says, for everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This verse is actually a quotation from Joel 2.32 and basically repeating uh, what was just expressed. And if you remember, Peter quotes this whole section in, his, in Acts 2, in his sermon to all the nations at Pentecost. He's saying, uh, for whoever calls on this, this Christ, whoever calls on this Messiah will be saved. In both of these contexts, again, there's a global emphasis of God's saving work. God is trying to get the message across. This is not an exclusive message for this one people. It's actually to be proclaimed to every nation, to every people on the planet. He desires that all the nations would know him. Very briefly, uh, I just want to address... Uh, verse 13, what, what does it mean? Because it's, it's important for what we're going to go on and see in verse 14 to 15 or 16. Uh, but what does it mean to call on the name of the Lord? Very important that we understand what exactly this means. Again, my heart's burdened about this. After working, um, and I'm not sure about your background or even your religious background, but uh, my wife and I had the privilege of working at a Christian camp for many, many summers. And it is astonishing kids that have grown up in, in church kids grown up in, in a church environment, um, the number one issue by a landslide, 
You know what they struggle with? They don't know if they're saved. Their assurance of salvation. Maybe that's some of your testimony as well. Assurance of salvation. They don't know if, if, if they're saved. And my fear is that Christians are either, number one, trying to find their assurance in the wrong place in this verse. I'll explain that. Or number two, they're using this verse to give a false assurance. So what does it mean to call in the name of the Lord? Well, number one, it means a lot more. And again, don't misunderstand me. Um, and if you have questions, come up after. I shared this a week ago, and there was a girl that was really scared. Um, because I had the opportunity to explain her what I meant. Uh, but by God's grace, I hope it's clear. Uh, it, calling on the name of the Lord, it, it means a lot more than saying a prayer. Christian, you will never get to heaven because you said a prayer. Your prayer cannot save you. Your prayer will never be good enough. Your faith by which you pray the prayer will never be great enough. God saves and God alone. So rest in the God that saves, not the prayer that you prayed. Second thing is it means to embrace Jesus, not recite words. The call that is described in these verses is not simply a cry to God for help. It is that. It is a cry to God for help. Okay? That's, That's very important. But it's so much more. It's a cry to God for help because of a heart that acknowledges, I can't save myself. I need one who is perfect. And I want that one to be my Lord and Savior. I accept Jesus and cry out because of a heart that acknowledges the need. It's this need that I have. I'm a sinner. I need one who's righteous. This means Christian. And again, hear me clearly that that if you simply prayed a prayer because someone told you to, or because that's what everyone else around you was doing, and what I mean by that isn't that you sincerely, in simple form, the best you can, you cried out to God and you believed that he was righteous and could save you. That's not what I mean. I'm saying you saw kids doing it, you said, yeah, I'll do that too just kind of a flippant, then it means that you don't, you're not born again. You just recited words. And again, I'm not saying God knows the heart. So if you truly believed on Christ and you, you called out in desperation to, for him to save you, I, I, that's one thing. But again, if you simply did a prayer because that's what everyone else is doing, you, you're not born again. You don't know him. Now, this is not a rant against praying a prayer. Uh, my heart's that it would be rooted in a heart that acknowledges one's sinful condition and Christ's perfect righteousness for themselves. And then third thing under this, what does it mean to call on the name of the Lord? The focus of salvation is on the Lord, not the call. For those that may be struggling with assurance, here's a quick comfort. And I love to talk about this because of my own, I guess you say, personal battle in this for many, many years. But while Paul is emphasizing the fact of calling on the Lord, because he is doing that. He's saying, whoever calls on the Lord, the emphasis for salvation is on the Lord who grants salvation, not the call. Remember in the previous verse, verse 12, what does he say? He says, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on on all who call on him. It's, it's the Lord who, who does it. It's, it's, it's him. Believer, you're saved because of God's amazing grace. Not your call. Your call, your prayer, your effort, again, as I mentioned, will never be good enough. So if that's the struggle, just, just release that. Quit trying to fight that battle. You won't find assurance in something you've done. Satan will attack that day in and day out. What he can't attack is the reality that Jesus died and rose again. 
And as you believe in that, your heart will be assured. The call is simply the acknowledgement of one's need of Jesus. Jesus is the point. This call is a response in a heart that believes. Again, so instead of resting in the fact that I did that, rest in the fact that he which hath begun a good work and you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. If you've come to Jesus, he will never cast you out and there's no man that can take you or there's no man, there's no thing that can take you out of his hand. You're secure in Christ. His grip is the one that's holding, not yours. Secondly, so we know God desires to save all the nations, but secondly, we see that God desires to use us to bring this mission about. Let's just work our way through these questions quickly in verse 14 and 15. He says, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And so here's Paul's acknowledging what we just talked about. This call is a response to belief. They call because they believe. They believe the truth. And they cry out in response to that, Lord, save me. And then he progresses through this. And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? You know, now Paul's bringing up a very important point to this this message this morning. And it is, believer. And again, I say this to myself too. I, I don't get a pass because I moved to another country. Are you okay that over 3 billion people today will lay their head down to go to sleep and have no idea that Jesus died and rose again? Whether you ever go or whether you stay, that should grip our hearts. They have no idea that there's a remedy for their soul's deepest, darkest longings, and his name is Jesus Christ. So what are you and I going to do about it? He goes on. He goes on and says, And how are they to hear without someone preaching? What is God's ordained method by which people hear the good news? It's the proclamation of the word of God. We proclaim the message. We proclaim the word to people. We proclaim the truth that Jesus, who is God, came to this earth He died on a cross. He he literally did that. That happened. He was real. That was real. He rose again three days later, providing a satisfaction for sin. And now if you would believe in him, if you would embrace him as your own, if you would put your trust in him and rely on him alone for your perfect righteousness, for salvation, he'll be your savior. That's the message we proclaim we go to people, we tell them whether they want to hear it or not. We don't, we're not rude, we don't um, you know, just throw it in their face, but that's the only answer that, they, that we have and that they have, that they need. And then he asks one more question. He says, and how are they to preach unless they are sent? Paul's last question here strikes right at the heart of the church's responsibility to sin. How will the nations hear about Jesus if, and you put yourself in the blank, if Cornerstone Church doesn't send proclaimers to do it? I realize different churches are at different points of their ministry and also realize that our modern method of supporting missionaries in some, uh, in some churches and all that is kind of seen as a way of sending. You know, you partner together to send. But I want to press even further and say, how, how is, is this church, how are you um, involved in, in thinking about sending? Or maybe are you even open to going? Have you ever asked the question, what if God would have me go to one of these places? 
You know, it's hard, it's difficult, it's personal, it's costly, and it's the most beautiful thing you could do as a church. We'll get back to that, um, the, the idea of being the most beautiful thing. But uh, we won't read through it, but in Acts 13, 1 to 3, we really have this, this example of this sending ministry at the church at Antioch. And here again, there's this example. This church was serious about the call to go and make disciples. I mean, it was amazing what they did and what they accomplished for gospel ministry in their day. And here we find Paul and Barnabas in those verses laboring in the work of the ministry at this church. They were involved in this work at Antioch. And what can we learn from this example? Well, number one, Paul and Barnabas were already busy doing the work of the ministry. God sent them, but they weren't sitting back and just not doing anything involved in making disciples. And then God said, hey, you guys go. No, they were already doing stuff. They're already involved in this work. And from that, God called them. You know, we see again, God really... In this sense, I mean, it's amazing when you read through that list in Acts 13, 1 to 3, and you say, God sent Paul and Barnabas. Now, maybe the others there were amazing writers and preachers and, and, and proclaimers, and they just, we don't have anything else from them. But maybe that's the case. But reality is, the one that pinned an incredible part of our New Testament uh, was the one God sent from there. I guess you could argue, in one sense, God took Two of the guys that were probably some of the top guys in that church that said, no, you guys go. The others have got it here. Just an amazing, we don't tend to think that way. What would it mean to you, Cornerstone Church, to, to let your pastor go? What would it mean to let your assistant go? What would it mean to let uh, one of your teachers who, who teaches the Bible study go? What would it mean for just you as, as a solid, uh, faithful church member that, that, that comes and, and has a heart for God to go. What would that mean? My question is, are you willing to do this? They also, they let go. At some point, Christ will call us on. Are you willing to let go of this or that person for the sake of Christ? Are you willing to move past the good old days that you may be experiencing today for the purpose of seeing the nations come to Christ? Again, I don't know history. I don't know uh, about this church, but I'm asking, have we become comfortable? Um, And maybe God just needs to stir us up a little bit and say, what could I do? I don't know what that is, but what could I do? I said earlier that the most beautiful thing a church could do is send others out for the sake of the gospel, and that's exactly what Paul says in verse 15. He says, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Paul's quoting Isaiah 52, 7. And in that verse, uh, Isaiah is looking to this future time where all will acknowledge Yahweh's reign. We see today in the age of the church that God is beginning today to draw the nations to himself. He's doing that today. He's these early stages of, of what will be ultimately in the future. And we, the church, get to be a part of this great commission. That is beautiful. So lastly... What's this simple method to accomplish this mission? Look in verse 17. He says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Do you know what the great, incredible, all-secret method of reaching the world for Christ is? Proclaim the word of God. It's not complicated. Now, it's difficult. It's hard. It may be time-consuming. 
it may seem boring to those who seek something really more cool, but it's pretty simple. Proclaim the word over and over and over and over. And as you faithfully proclaim the word, guess what happens? This person believes. That person believes. This person gets burdened to go make disciples. That person says, you know, I think God may be calling me to go to this nation, to go to this people. But it's because the proclamation of the word. So what do we do? We proclaim the word. Brother, sister, your evangelism strategy will never be the means by which God saves someone. And by all means, be intentional. Strategize. Do the best you can. But your passionate plea of asking someone to come to Christ will never be the cause of their faith and repentance. We go, we proclaim, we, we, we try to persuade, as this word means, but we step back and we say, God's the one that gives the increase. I am totally dependent on him to do it. And he does so by the power of the word as the spirit implants its truth in hearts of dead people and they're made alive. And that's amazing. There's power in the word. Therefore, go proclaim it to all the nations so that they would hear it and believe and spend all eternity glorifying this God who's worthy of their worship and praise. So we close this morning with one question that we really began. And I ask you, what are you going to do about the 3.19 billion people who have never heard of Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for your son that's, that's provided the sacrifice for us. Lord, I pray if there's someone here who, who, who's never heard this message, that they would respond, that they would come to Christ, that they would give their life to him, submit to him. But Lord, I also pray for those that do know Christ this morning. I pray that you would stir us. Um, even, even if you don't send anyone, Lord, which I pray you would. I pray you would this morning. But how can we be involved in this? How can we get this message to the nation so that they would hear and understand and worship you forever? I pray that be our motivation, uh, you. And we were so thankful that we can even gather here and, and worship the God who saved us. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.